Philippians chapter number two. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. We're getting an evening where it's not storming on us, and uh, that's a blessing. Amen. Philippians chapter number two, and uh, I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. Philippians chapter number two, and verse number one. I will remind you, I'll be down here with t-shirts after the morning service, if you or after the the tonight service. Uh, so if you ordered a t-shirt, I can meet you down here, and we'll get you squared away with that after the service tonight. Philippians chapter two, verse number one. Paul says this, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Pray that you'd use it in our hearts and minds, Lord, as only it can be used. Lord, that, that it can accomplish things in us that nothing else can. And Lord, I pray that as we rightly divide the word of truth, that you get glory, that we get a clear understanding of what the scripture teaches. And Lord, that it would it would be brought to pass in us a greater, clearer image of the person of Christ, that as we leave here, we'd be more like him, that you might receive glory. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, most of the Pauline epistles in the New Testament are written to correct some issue in a New Testament church. Uh, in fact, even if a person wants to squint hard enough, even a book like uh, First or Second Thessalonians was correcting a, a doctrinal error, and though there was nothing necessarily uh, that was amiss in the way the church was interacting one with another, there were still things that had to be resolved. You know, it's a reminder to me that no church is perfect. Uh, I love our church. I appreciate what Jim said at the beginning of the service, and and I like that. I like short business meetings, amen. Uh, and and the reason I like that is because most of the time it means there's some sort of of unity of mind in in, in the church, and so I, I appreciate that. I enjoy that. You know, if there's business that needs to be carried out, then by all means we should carry it out. But uh, I don't like business just for business' sake, and and I appreciate that. I love our church. I mean, I, I do. There's no other church I'd want to be a part of. Uh, this is is God's will for my family. It's God. God's home for my spiritual nourishment. I don't care what church it is, ours included. There is no perfect church. Uh, every church has things that have to be have to be grown and, and, and nourished and things that have to be corrected and things that have to be brought into adjustment with the word of God. And so Paul would write the Pauline epistles, uh, these being personal letters to these churches, most of whom he had known on a personal basis and many of which he had himself planted. And he was often correcting some issue in these churches. And the church at Philippi was was no different than the rest of them. It had its share of problems. Uh, some common 
commentators have noted that there's not much that's mentioned that's wrong in the church at Philippi. I would agree with that. However, I think if we if we read just in a practical perspective what Paul's writing here, we can pick up on what the issue was at this church. There's one verse in particular that I think sort of puts its finger on the problem at this church, and it's in chapter number 4, verse number 2. Paul says this, I beseech Eudeus and I, and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Uh, Paul writes because there's two women in the church that have an issue in betwixt themselves. And evidently this problem and this conflict had bled out into the body at large. And that's what gives the occasion for Paul to write what he does in chapter number two. And uh, with great tact and great gentleness and grace, he addresses the church at large before he deals directly with these two women. But the problem at the church at Philippi was a lack of unity. Now, I'll tell you, in the in the world we're living in today, and you've heard me say this before, but for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And there are some people that want you to believe that the biggest problem a church can have is a lack of unity. I would say this, there's bigger problems a church can have. Uh, if a church has doctrinal problems, I'd say that's a bigger problem than unity. If a church has moral problems, failings, moral failings on behalf of leadership or open sin that is unaddressed, that's a bigger problem than, than unity is. And certainly it would be more important that we be holy than that we have unity. We ought to stand on the truth of the word of God no matter what. But the other ditch on the other side of the road is I think sometimes we've made too little and too light of the importance of unity. We've made it seem as though church, and this, by the way, is is in keeping with the spirit of the age where church members are viewed as customers, as clientele that just go to a place and sit and absorb some kind of 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 uh, you know production that's put on by the leadership of a church, and and there's no real investment, and there's no involvement with the church, and and there's no interaction between the Lord and and the person hearing the message. And I think because that's the the spirit of the age that we're living in, of sort of consumer commercialized. Christianity, I think that oftentimes it's easy to disregard the importance of unity in the local church. Uh, In other words, I'd say this, hey, we better all be on the same page. And I don't mean with my program or, or somebody else's. I'm talking about the same page in this book. We better be on the same page in terms of God's economy and God's plan and God's desire and God's will for us as a people. The reason that Paul writes this, it's true the church at Philippi didn't seem to have any big doctrinal issues. It's it's true that the church at Philippi didn't really seem to have any big moral failures. But he did not just put his pen down and say, well, they got most everything right, I'll ignore the rest. Instead, when he saw this problem, he recognized the danger. He recognized the potential for this to spin out of control and shipwreck this body of believers. And so the Holy Ghost puts pen in his hand and guides and directs Paul to write, the book of Philippians, the central theme mostly being joy in the Lord, but also unity in the body of believers. He mentions this distinctly in verse number two, and it's precious language language that he uses. He says, fulfill ye my joy. Paul said, you know what thrill me? You know what make me happy is for you as a church to be on the same page. Paul was comforted and encouraged to know that believers were working together for the cause of Christ, loving one another, and that there was no dissension in the midst of of the body. He says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be, and notice this phrase, like-minded. I think it's important that we use Bible language, and when we talk about unity, really a good Bible term for it would be like-mindedness. 
I was talking to a missionary earlier today. We were messaging back and forth. It's actually it's a missionary that's going to be with us in August. And he was talking about the time that he's going to spend here in East Tennessee. And he said, you know, I'd love to know about some other like-minded churches. And I thought to myself when I read that, you know, what do we mean when we say that like-minded? Well, I think that that Paul here gives us a picture of what it means to be like-minded. But let me say before I even get to it, hey, if we don't have the mind of Christ, we're not going to be like-minded. The reason that a lot of churches struggle in the area of unity is because everybody is self-minded. Their own interests, their own perspectives, their own preferences. It's not about exalting Christ, but instead it's about carving out a place for them to either gain the attention or the leeway or the governance. Uh, We've got a lot of churches in our day, and I don't believe our churches like this. I hope it's not, uh, that are filled with a lot of diatrophies like was in 2 John that we're trying to have the preeminence over the church. And listen, if we're self-minded, we can't be like-minded because nobody else is self but you. Uh, in other words, if I'm looking out for me, then we're not going to be on the same page because unless you decide to look out for me, we ain't going to be in agreement. If you look out for you and I look out for me, we're not going to be like-minded. Only believers regenerated by the Holy Ghost, born again, can truly be like-minded one with another. And that's through the mind of Christ being expressed through us. Now, what does that look like? Well, Paul describes three things, and he just puts it down where we can learn and live with it. He says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. What does that mean? Well, number one, he says, having the same love. In other words, to be like-minded in affection. We ought to love the same things. One of the reasons that churches struggle, particularly a lot of churches, they make a watershed transition uh, from uh, standing in old paths and the truth of the Word of God to moving to a consumerist model of uh, Christianity. And when they do, invariably the church blows up. And the reason why is because people value two different things. You know, one of the ways that we can be like-minded is if we love the right... Hey, if we love seeing sinners come to Christ, we're going to have the right attitude about ministry. If we love seeing Christ exalted in our music ministry, we're going to have a like-minded attitude about music. If we love seeing the Lord uh, glorified in in the way the church is administrated, then we're going to be like-minded in how the church is administrated. In other words, the first key is you've got to love the same thing. Uh, one of the things that endears people to my heart, and uh, I don't say this to to try to coerce or manipulate, but I just say it just to brag on those that have already done it. Man, it blesses my heart when people love my kids. Uh, and I remember, you know, my parents talking about this before I had children. Uh, my dad said, you're never going to love your wife the way that you do after you have kids because you're going to see the way that she loves your children. And I would say I've always loved my parents, but it has endeared them to my heart to see them love my children the way that they do. You know why? Because I love my kids. We love the same thing. So by and large, except for the matter of high amounts of sugar right before they come home, we're pretty, pretty like-minded about the same thing. So we've got to have the same love. We, we've got to value the same things. And, and this happens when we allow scriptural values to displace carnal values in our life, when we value the things that God values. So in affection, number two, he says this, being of one accord. Now, he's not talking about a Honda, but rather when he says of one accord, an accord is an agreement. It is a pact. It is a covenant. And typically, an agreement, pact, or covenant is entered into because people have a distinct and shared purpose in mind. 
So we could say it this way, that there needs to be unity and affection, but in accord, we need to be striving for the same things. We need to have the same goal and the same purpose in what we're doing in ministry. I was talking to our Sunday school class on Sunday morning. We was preaching to Ephesians and, and talking about the displacing of our old identity and replacing it with the person of Christ. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. And I told him, I said, you know, that's really what we're striving to do at Walridge is to see Christ loom larger and live clearer in people's lives. Now, of course, we want to see people come to Christ and we want to see people uh, gain encouragement and comfort and, and hope and all those things. But as it regards saved individuals that are that are coming to church on a regular basis, you say, preacher, what are you trying to do in, in, in their life? Well, my goal is not to entertain you. Uh, my goal is, is not to uh, enrich you or enrich me. Uh, my goal is not to try to just put people in the pews. We could do that very easily if we wanted to do that. I, there was a church a few years ago downtown who was giving out gas cards to people Sunday. And they blew up, you know, and uh, that, well, it's easy to fill pews when that's how you're doing it. And, and we could do that. But what are we striving to do in the life of believers? Well, we're striving to see them become more like Christ. So in other words, there needs to be unity and we need to love the same things, but we also need to be working towards the same goals. We need to have the same values. And that's what he goes on to say of one mind. Now, how do we have the same mind? How's that even possible? Well, only by valuing the mind of Christ, which is disclosed to us in the word of God. In other words, we need to have the same perspectives. We need to have the same attitude in the way that we view things. I'll tell you, one of the things that creates such a disconsonant environment in churches is because it's a it's a salad bar of beliefs. Now, I will tell you this, and I've always felt this way. I don't want anybody to hold a belief just because I do. I want you to be convinced in your own mind from the Scriptures. Uh, and I'm not so insecure in what the Bible teaches that I have to berate and browbeat and, and try to run off people that may disagree with me about things. But I would also say we're never going to have unity if we can't agree on some basic truths about the Word of God. Uh, and you can shove a bunch of people in the same room and call it a church, but if there's no agreement around the Bible and what the truth is, then you're not really going to have unity. My preacher used to say it this way, you can tie uh, two cats' tails together and you'll have union, but you won't have unity. They won't be headed in the same direction. And certainly there are a lot of churches that are nothing but a bunch of cats' tails that are tied together. That should not be our goal. Rather, our goal should be unity. So in verse 2, Paul talks about the promotion of unity. He says it's important, it's it's valuable, it, it, it is imperative that we have unity in a body of believers. And let me just also throw this in there. That's not just true about a church. It's also true about your marriage. It's true about your relationship with your kids. It's true about your family. It's true about every aspect of your life that is wholly involved with born-again people. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to have unity if people love and value the same things. That's why God warns us against being unequally yoked. If uh, people get married that are unequally yoked, they're never going to have unity in their home uh, because uh, they're always going to value different things and be working towards different goals and have different attitudes about things. And so in our relationships, not just in our church relationships, but in all of them, we should strive for unity. Now, somebody's going to be thinking, okay, preacher, you've convinced me. I want to, but how? And I'm glad you asked that because, you know, the Bible tells us how. I want you to notice the rest of these verses we've read tonight. We'll move through them as swiftly as God will allow. But I think in this we have three basic truths. In verse 1, I think we have the premise of unity. In other words, why we can even have unity in the first place. Then we have the process of unity. How does that uh, manifest itself in a body of believers? And then we have the pattern 
pattern for unity. In other words, I'm glad God's shown us what it looks like to, to, to foster unity amongst believers. So verse number one, notice what he says. Before he ever talks about what he wants, what he desires, he prefaces it with a, a couple of statements that should be a given in the life of the believer. He says, if there be therefore, and he lists a few things. Number one, he says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. Number two, if any comfort of love. Number three, if any fellowship of the Spirit. And number four, if any bows and mercies. There's going to be people in your life that are probably never going to be your best friend. Uh, there may be people in your life that will not live peaceably with you. That's why the Bible says as much as life in you live peaceably with all men, because some men won't allow it. And I understand that. But when it comes to believers that love the Lord, that desire for God to get glory out of their life, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to have unity one with another. And this is the reason why. Four things that Paul points to that says, you know, with these in our life, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to have unity. Notice the first thing is the consolation of salvation. He says any consolation in Christ. Now, that word consolation is interesting. It's used in several different ways in your Bible, but mostly we're familiar with the idea of a consolation prize. Oftentimes when someone uh, is striving for uh, a prize, they may not get the main, the number one prize. We're getting ready to do our carnival night on uh, on Friday night. And a lot of the reason we get those smaller toys is for consolation prizes. A uh, kid steps up there, tries to throw the ring around the Coke bottle or whatever it is and misses. They don't get it, but they won't walk away with nothing, though they deserved nothing. <laughs> right? You don't, you don't get anything for losing. Though they deserve nothing, they won't walk away empty handed. They'll get something. And what that is, is a comfort to them over the fact that they're losers. Alright? It's a, it's a consolation. It's a source of comfort. It's a source of encouragement. Uh, the word exhortation is also associated with this word. And it has the idea of getting something you don't deserve and gaining comfort and peace from it. Can I say this? You say, preacher, why should I give people unity? Because you didn't deserve unity with the Lord, but you got it anyway. And you say, well, preacher, I earned it. No, you didn't. The ring didn't land anywhere near the Coke bottle. Uh, you missed the mark, right? That's what sin means, to miss the mark. No, you didn't deserve it, but God saved you anyway. And uh, he saved you by his grace and by his mercy. And you know what that does? It provides to us great comfort and great consolation. Uh, we could maybe say it this way, that no matter what we have to bear or endure in the pursuit of unity, we are still coming out ahead of where we should have been. Because by the grace and mercy of God, we've been forgiven and pardoned and given a home in heaven. So he talks about the consolation of salvation. Number two, he talks about the comfort of love. Now, that's interesting, the comfort of love. Uh, a couple questions have to be asked. Who is showing the love and who is receiving the love? And who is dispensing the comfort and who is gaining the comfort? Well, I don't think what he's saying is you need to do it because you comfort others through the love that you show them. Rather, I think what he's saying, especially paired with the word consolation in the previous phrase, I think what he's saying is you ought to be comforted in knowing that the love of God persists, exhausts, and outlasts whatever circumstances you find yourself in. You know, very often we don't want to yield whenever there's problems and conflict and static and noise. We don't want to yield because we feel as though we're losing by doing it. I'll tell you something. How could anyone that's been brought into the family of God lose in any circumstance? 
Uh, you say, but preacher, they might feel like they got the best of me. And uh, if that's enough to help you sleep at night, God bless you. It shouldn't be. Preacher, they might feel like they got the best of me. Or preacher, I might have to do without something. Or I might have to, you know, in whatever circumstance that is, we can always be comforted. And often the fear is, the anxiety is when we're suing for unity with someone that we will show love and they won't reciprocate that love back to us. They won't evidence it back to us. We can be comforted in knowing that no matter what happens, the Lord loves us. Say, preacher, I might lose out by seeking after unity. Well, listen, you'll never lose the love of God. Uh, preacher, I might show love to them and they might not show love backwards. Well, you're never going to lose the love of God. The very fact that God loves you ought to be enough. And by the way, let's just go ahead and drop this in here. The very fact that God loves them as well ought to be enough to give you the comfort that you need. So there's consolation of salvation, comfort of love. And then he says this, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Boy, now we're really getting to where this thing lives. So uh, consolation of salvation, comfort of love, but it's also cooperation with the Spirit. Why can we have unity? And in the context here, he's talking about other believers. Well, for one simple reason, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, what if I listen to the Holy Ghost and they don't listen to the Holy Ghost? Well, God still loves you and God still loves them and God will deal with them. But you can rest in the knowledge that you've done the right thing in that situation no matter what. The only chance that we have of unity one with another is if we yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, allow him the governance and jurisdiction of our life and allow him to make the decisions for us. You know, it's an amazing thing, and I've often wondered at it, that a preacher can get up and preach a message to you know, dozens, scores, however many people, and God use it to work in the hearts of so many people present there. You know why? It's not because the preacher is some kind of Svengali of public perception. It's not because that, that we set up and try to just cast a net so broad that it has to scoop somebody in. But rather it's because the Spirit of God takes that truth and applies it to the hearts of those that are listening. Now, how can he do that? Well, because he indwells me, but he also indwells you. By the same token, if I'm listening to the Spirit of God, and if you're listening to the Spirit of God, He's always going to bear witness with Himself. He's never going to act and speak contrary to Himself. And so He will always lead people in a common direction in accordance with the truth of the Word of God. Now, I know what you're thinking, but preacher, there's been times that I have followed the Holy Spirit, and somebody else has said they are following the Holy Spirit, and we've not wound up in the same place doing the same thing. I know that. You know, funny thing, I've been around people too. So what do I do in that situation, preacher? Well, I would say this, that if unity with them requires you to disobey the Holy Spirit in the first place, then that unity would not be unity in the first place. You might be going in a common direction, but you wouldn't really have unity one with another. So if you follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life, there may be times that people part ways with you. That's on them. God will deal with them. But you can have unity with other believers that are likewise headed in the direction that God wants them to be in. So how does this happen? Why can we have unity? Well, because the consolation of salvation and the comfort of love, the cooperation with the Spirit. But then notice what he says, if any bowels and mercies. Now, the term bowels is used figuratively there, but it does mean the inward parts of a person. It's being used in a figurative sense to denote feeling inwardly. And he uses that term mercies as well. Both of these we could probably summarize in this word, compassion. Compassion. The reason we can have unity one with another or the thing that permits and allows unity one with another is compassion. 
because we feel for one another, because we desire for the best for one another, there will be times that unity, and we'll see this here in a moment, but unity and striving for unity in our life is not a simple, easy, comfortable process. Oftentimes it means self-rejection, self-deprivation. It means setting self aside. And so you say, preacher, why would a person do that? Well, because they love one another and have compassion for each other. Uh, we could maybe just a simple, uh, you know, from the hip definition of compassion would probably be the willingness to emotionally inconvenience ourselves for the sake of another person. In other words, being willing to care. You know, it's very simple if we desire to do it, set our mind to it, to shut off our heart from anyone else, to just quit caring. We live in a world that is populated with sociopaths. And it's easy to let that become the prevailing spirit and mentality of ourselves, to just quit feeling and quit uh, having compassion one to another. We can do that if we want, but if we do that, we short-circuit our ability to have unity with each other. You know why some folks can never get on the same page? Because neither of them will budge from the same place. And somebody's going to have to be willing to if there's going to be unity in the first place. If our desire and if our pursuit is merely to entrench ourselves in our own self-interest and make sure we're looking out for me and mine for number one, then of course there'll be no unity because the chances are the other person's doing the same thing. Well, now you're going to say, well, preacher, now they could care enough about, whoa, now wait a minute. Why would they care that much about you if you don't care that much about them? You see, the fact is it takes compassion. And it's easy to just callous ourselves, to just lock ourselves away and to quit caring. But if we're going to have unity, it's going to take compassion. So we see the premise of unity. But then verse 3 gives us the process of unity. What does that look like? Verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So you say, all right, preacher, I understand I've got everything that I need to have unity with somebody that likewise desires unity. But but how do we get the ball rolling? How does this happen in our life? Well, I would say, number one, pride must be shunned. Notice what he says. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. I've counseled a lot of people marital things over the years and, and tried to help people through their problems. Can I tell you what most people's marital problems look like? It looks like an onion that is about 137,000 layers deep of people entrenching themselves in their pride to such a degree that they can't even remember what the first thing was that they were never going to budge on. You know why there's no unity? Because somebody's going to have to give up their pride. It's going to have to happen. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that only by pride cometh contention. That's a powerful verse. If there's contention, somebody's pride is somewhere there. Only by pride cometh contention. And the fact is, the first thing we're going to have to recognize is that our pride, and when we talk about pride, pride uh, can be used in a positive and in a negative sense, but obviously the majority of the time it's in a negative sense. Certainly here in this context, when it talks about vainglory, it's being spoken of in a negative sense. We have to recognize that our pride holds no value or currency. I love what one commentator said when he read a little further on in this verse, in verse number seven, rather, a little further on this chapter. He says this, but made himself of no reputation. A friend of mine said one time, you've got a good reputation. God bless you. God made himself of no reputation. What is reputation worth? And I understand a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. But reputation in the sense of something we can boast in of ourselves, uh, that holds no value. And if you're going to have unity, the first thing you're going to have to realize is your pride ain't worth nothing. 
Nothing. Not even it's, oh, it's, it's worth a little bit. Pre- nope. It's not worth anything. Pride must be shunned. Notice number two, praise must be shared. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, the word esteem means how we reckon or regard someone, how we appreciate and value something. And we're to value others better than ourselves, better than themselves. So in other words, if there's going to be unity, first, pride has to be shunned. We have to recognize this isn't about proving anything. This isn't about, uh, you know, uh, getting our attention, getting our praise. Rather, this is about seeking unity. But number two, we've got to be willing to see what God's doing in the lives of others, appreciate that, and offer praise for that. Uh, if we spend all of our time trying to make sure people recognize us, and everyone else does that too, you know what we're constantly going to be doing is arguing and ignoring each other. Only when we start to seek others' esteem are we going to see any kind of unity. You know, funny thing about it, if my only interest is in telling you how awesome I am, and if your only interest is in telling me how awesome you are, we are never going to be talking about the same thing. But now, if my interest is in telling you how awesome Gene is, and your interest is in telling me how awesome somebody is, and it happens to be Gene, we might wind up talking about the same thing. Uh, Let's even take this a little further. If my interest is in telling you how awesome the Lord is, and if your interest is in telling others how awesome the Lord is, man, we're always going to be talking about the same thing. Uh, It's a funny thing, man. I can talk to people that know the Lord and love the Lord. I can talk to them about things uh, about the Lord, whereas I'd probably never talk to them about anything otherwise. You think about if if the goal of it is just to find. I mean, listen, this is this isn't a this isn't a, a, a common interest club. That's not what we're going for here. There's a lot of churches that that's what they are. I've known people leave this church and leave other churches because they say, well, preacher, I just don't have anybody in my same life situation. What saved? I mean, if our whole goal here is just, well, I just want to find people. Hey, let's join Classic Car Club if that's your interest. That's fine. Go join a bowling league if that's your interest. That's fine. But the house of God is not just about trying to find people with shared common interests. they got the Internet for that. What this is about is orienting our life around the person of Jesus Christ and finding unity around him. So it's not about just finding people of shared common interests. And if our greatest interest in life is Christ then as saved individuals, we'll always have a shared interest, at least as much of one as is necessary to carry out the work of the gospel. So praise must be shared. But notice number three, preference must be shown. Verse number four, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, if your whole goal is to get your way, you're not going to have unity with other people. But if your whole goal is to see that others, and I don't mean get their way in the sense of of them being able in petulant childishness to always have their their own way, but rather to see that their needs are met, to see that what God is doing in their life is furthered and, and nurtured. If your goal is that, and if their goal is that, then you're going to find unity one with another. Again, uh, part of the reason we, we have, and we live in a very uh, balkanized, item, atomized society. 
One of the things that's been the product over the past three, four years is people have just sort of have separated away and any sort of social cohesion that has existed has just sort of dissipated. And we're all just sort of sitting our own little pods interacting through the Internet. And that's what the, the tyrants that, that, that rule over us want. That's what they're interested in. Uh, it's why they don't want you being able to drive. It's why they don't want you being able to afford gasoline to be able to drive. They're terrified of that. They don't want people getting together and talking. Because they might find out that uh, everybody's sort of thinking the same thing about some things. And um, as a product of that, we have grown tragically content in just living in our own little space and trying to see to our needs and make sure we have everything that we want. We live in a world where everything that we could want is at our disposal with two-day free shipping, and we never have to interact with each other. And oftentimes in that environment, we lose the capacity care about the needs of other people. If you're going to have unity, you're going to have to learn, man, it ain't about you. No more than it's about me. Uh, it's about Christ for, first and then others through the love of Christ and seeking for them to have the things that they need in their life. You say, well, preacher, who's going to look out for me? Well, number one, the Lord will look out for you. But number two, if everybody's doing this and we find unity around this this ideal, then you're going to find that others are looking out for your needs just as you're looking out for their needs. So we see here the process of unity. And finally, and I'll be done, I'm not even going to mention a lot about it. I'm just going to glance at it. Once you notice the pattern for unity. The Bible says this in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here's ultimately how we have unity. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We'll pause there, because I want you to notice two thoughts here, and then we'll move on to our third one. Notice, number one, his condescension is mentioned. The first thing he talks about is his high situation, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Christ did not robe himself in flesh because he was embarrassed to be thought equal with God. He was and is and forever will be equal with God because he is God. He is God the Son, the Son of God, yes, but he is God the Son. So in other words, we oftentimes would say, well, preacher, I won't take that lower position. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you are? The Lord knew who he was. But it didn't prevent him when he sought to reconcile, to provide unity between God and man, because that's what Calvary was. He was reconciling the world unto himself when he sought to do that, though he though there was he shouldn't have had to leave his ivory palaces. But still he did because that's what it took. We see his high situation, but then notice his humble spirit. What did he do? He made himself of no reputation. I don't know about you, but if I was God, and if I was going to robe myself in flesh, I would have done it with great fanfare. I would have made sure that everyone from, from, from setting sun to setting sun would have known who I was, where I was, what I could do, and what I was about. But he did not. <laughs> Instead, he was born of a virgin's womb, laid in a manger. He robed himself in flesh, and he lived a life of humble servitude. He, he, I mean, listen, it's not an accident that he lived a life of obscurity until the moment of public ministry was upon him. Very little said about his early life, and that's by design. You know why? Because he made himself of no reputation. But here's what he did. He took upon him the form of a servant. 
and was made in the likeness of men. So in other words, in his pattern, we see his highest situation. But preacher, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to humble myself. Don't you know who I am? Well, I know who God is. And I know that he humbled himself. Why? Because that was necessary for man to be reconciled to God. Number two, we see his crucifixion. Notice there's two parts to this. First is his submission. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. You know why that Paul says it that way, being found in fashion as a man, he did that? Because only by being robed in flesh could he die in the first place. Death was the jurisdiction, or death's jurisdiction was humanity. And had he not been made flesh and had he not become our sin for us on Calvary, he could not have died. Death would have had no hold upon him. But he did that for the express purpose that he might submit himself to the will of God. He became obedient. Think about that. God became obedient. He allowed the will of the Father to be exercised above His will. And I understand that you and I can't understand everything about what I just said, but I do know enough to know there was a time when He said, Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will. His submission, it wasn't easy. He begged to not drink of that bitter cup, but there was no other way. He said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet still he drank of the cup. Why? Because there was no other way. His submission, but then notice his substitution, even the death of the cross. He didn't just die, and it's not just merely denoting that he died the the historical Roman way of execution, but what it's saying is not just that he went to a cross, he went to the cross. He died in your place and my place. He put you and I above him so that we could be reconciled unto God. And then notice what God did. Look at his coronation, verses 9 through 11. Wherefore, in light of all this, because of all this, because this happened, here's what God did. God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. Preacher, you don't understand. If I if I swallow my pride, if I humble myself, and if I put them first, I'm never going to get what I need and what I want. You're wrong. The Lord Jesus is the perfect example of that. Listen, he suffered going to the cross, but he was no loser in going to the cross. God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. By the way, let me just drop this in here. You'd be amazed when you humble yourself for the sake of unity, how often that your name will be the only name that can rescue and save and help people when the time of their distress and need arrives. You'll find that you'll be the conduit for the ministry of God's mercy and grace in their life. And I don't mean in the sense of you dispensing salvation to them. But I'm saying this, if you'll be with the grace of God, a friend to someone and seek unity, when the time comes they are in need, it'll be you that they call. It'll be you that they need. Kind of like whenever he was given a name which was above every name. Every single one of them people that jeered at him, that screamed at him, that cursed him, that spit at him. If they're going to go to heaven, they had to go through him to get there. So I would say this. I, listen, he wasn't the loser for it. At verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, now we start to see some unity here. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Now that sort of sounds like unity to me. One of these days, everybody is going to bow before him. There's one of these things that we are all going to do, all of us together. Every single person that has ever lived and breathed in this world, we're all going to get together and do the same thing. We're all going to bow the knee. It produced unity. And then he says this, that every tongue should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're all going to agree about the same. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine all of creation agreeing about something? But they're going to one day. They'll have to one day. They'll agree. That's the ultimate unity that could ever be had, that could ever have been fostered. And I, listen, I'm not talking about no kind of Unitarian, Universalist, nonsense notion of salvation. I'm not saying that every knee that bows is going to be a born-again knee. I'm not saying that every tongue that confesses is going to be confessing in salvation. But I'm saying there's coming a day that everybody's going to have to agree about Jesus. Everybody. And notice what's then going to happen. To the glory of God the Father. In other words, this unity worked to a grander purpose. To the glory of God. So in the same way, we'll find that if we pursue unity in our marriage, in our home, with our our families, in our church family, that God can bring that to pass for the glory of God and for the good of us, and he can, in a beautiful way that we can achieve in our own means, produce something that is to his glory and his honor in our lives. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I don't know what God may have dealt with your heart about. I know what I preached on, but he may not even dealt with you about what I preached on. It may have been some statement that was made in passing. It may have been something I didn't even say. It might have been something in a verse that was read that wasn't even along the vein of thought of what was preached on, or it might have been exactly what we was preaching on tonight. But if in any way God dealt with you about anything in your life, I want you to respond in obedience to him. You're going to have to set your pride aside. You're going to have to humble yourself before him. And you're going to have to be willing first to seek unity with him and then to allow him to have his will and way in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name with our heads bowed.